The second quote from Martin Luther. A man cannot do good before he is made good. Now, we are to do good, but we can't do good until we are first, first made good. The being made good is the work of God. It's a work of God's grace. The last quote was known, this, this English Puritan was known as the Shakespeare of the Puritans. You really won't get that from a very short quote. But uh, if you want to check it out later, he was the Shakespeare of the Puritans. He said, good deeds are such things that no man is saved by them, nor without them. We're not saved by good works, but we are not saved apart from good works. They're the consequence of grace, not the reason for grace. So, in Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, the emphasis is on what only God can do. Where the best services are about glorious sins, chapters 1 to 3, what we bring to the table are our glorious sins. And we see a work of salvation in spite of our glorious sins. Uh, we need to be made good before we can do be, uh, be good. Chapters 1 to 3 talk about how it is that sinners are made good. And in chapters 1 to 3, we see that good, good deeds are such things that no man is saved by them. Saved by grace through faith. Not of works. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. The last three chapters of Ephesians, 4, 5, and 6, emphasize what Thomas Adams says. Good deeds are such things that no man is saved without them. We are called to a life of good works. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which follows the grace of God that saves us. So that's where we're at. We're in chapters 4, 5, and 6. We've been in 4 a while. Uh, we'll probably be done next week in chapter 4. So let's, uh, let's look at what we've already covered. Here's, the, here's what the changed life should look like. Therefore, having... Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So a person saved by grace avoids a life of deception where you give people the wrong impressions about what is really true or the things that come out of your mouth are not deceptive and untrue. We live lives of transparency and truth. That's what we're called to. Secondly, we spent a lot of weeks on 26 and 27 when it, is, when it is appropriate for righteous anger, because we have compassion, and then all the warnings against anger, be angry, but do not sin. And be angry, but do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity for the devil. We spent two and a half pushing three weeks on those verses. Now we're going to push that aside and we're going to move to the third category of changed behavior. The good life we are to live because of the way God has made us good by His grace. It reads like this. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Here the contrast is between stealing and working hard and sharing. So the first question we could ask is, do Christians really need to be told not to steal? Well, Paul wrote it to the church. So on one hand, the answer has to be yes, because Paul said, Christians, 
Let the thief no longer steal. We shouldn't live lives where stealing is something that is done, and there's a variety of ways in that in which that may occur. But a, an easy way to understand what it might mean to not steal is to look at what Paul says positively and and turn those into questions. Do Christians really need to be told to work hard? That's the idea behind labor. It's not just work. Labor has the idea of, of hard work, laborious work. Do Christians need to be told that? Well, probably more often than just don't steal. Do Christians really need to be told to do honest work? In your job, be honest in all that you do? Do Christians really need to be told, and you need to share with people in need? Well, it's easier to imagine Christians have to be told that. But I think there's a relationship between stealing and the positive things that we are to do. Because if I'm not doing the positive things, I think there's probably a sense in which, in fact, I am stealing. But let's go back to the concept of stealing. Ways in which stealing, how it can look, what it can look like. Stealing, forms of stealing, it can look like stealing time. Uh, Our time doesn't belong to us. Our time belongs to God. We're stewards of our time, as well as our labor. And so I can steal from an employer if I'm not uh, performing as the task requires and I'm stealing time from my employer. So you can steal time. I think you can steal from the government. Uh, It's easy to, uh, especially in our day and age, you know, you take cash income and it may be easy not to report that. The government's not going to audit you because you made this little bit of income on the side. God knows. You know, uh, we can steal from the government. If the government requires that I report that as income and I don't, I'm stealing. And so Paul would say, look, don't steal. That's part of stealing too. We can steal products and services. Isn't it Netflix that just recently said, like, we're cracking down on sharing passwords? I mean, Microsoft, it took them years to figure out how to license their products. Uh, Microsoft Word and Microsoft, what's the whole package called? Uh, Office, Microsoft Office and Microsoft Windows. They would have all this built-in stuff where they're trying to get people not to buy their newest copy of Windows and install it on everybody's computer in the family because you've bought one license. But it was hard to do before the Internet got really fast because uh, it was just hard to do that. As the Internet got faster, they can link it up with Microsoft and they know who's bought it and they know a legitimate copy, an authentic copy from an inauthentic copy. It's stealing when I'm stealing products and services. You know, I've got family, uh, not immediate family, but I've got family that when they go to the movie theater, they take in their own refreshments. That's stealing from a theater. Well, they charge so much for the movie. Then don't go. You know, they also make money off, off paying that absurd amount of money for popcorn or whatever else you get there. But that's, that's their business. You don't have to go there. Um, We can steal products and services. We can steal by failing to pay a debt. If I've incurred a debt and I fail to pay the debt, I've stolen. I've stolen from somebody, regardless of how that debt gets covered, whether it's through insurance or the government or the company just absorbs the cost, I can steal steal from companies by failing to pay a debt. I can steal by refusing to work. And I realize there are people that legitimately cannot work. And I think as a society, 
I think it's good to be kind and to uh, provide for the needs of those who cannot work. But if it's a matter of I will not work, I think, uh, I think that's a form of stealing. And lastly, and maybe arguably, but probably not arguably, the worst of all is stealing from God. Uh, I want to be careful here. Uh, Malachi does lay down a principle where he calls Israel and says, you've stolen from me and you haven't brought your tithes into the storehouse. Now, we're not under law and we're not Israel. So I don't preach tithing. I don't think scripture uh, applies tithing to the New Testament church. But scripture does teach that we ought to give And in fact, we ought to give sacrificially. Uh, We ought to give as is purposed in our heart to give. And if that, uh, however small that amount is, I need to start somewhere and ask God to grow and enlarge my heart so that I'm giving out of more generosity or more sacrificially than what I was before. There is still the principle of giving, even though it's not Old Testament law. And if I'm not engaged in that, I think I'm stealing from God in addition to stealing from my neighbor. And it seems like it's really quiet in here. Uh, Speaker's Bible, early 1900s, kind of correlates the two. The idea of not stealing and what that might look like if we're not working hard, doing honest work and sharing. How the relationship, what it may look like. It puts it this way. This is from over 100 years ago. The exhortation is highly disconcerting to those of us who live in the modern world. This is a hundred years ago. Who live in the modern world. For which of us is able to assure himself that half his possessions are not stolen? That his salary is not taken from the labor of others? Instead of feeling sure that the apostle's exhortation does not apply to us, it is very questionable whether modern society is not a vast system of legalized stealing. And he must be a clever and complacent person who can assure himself that he is in no danger of coming under the direct condemnation implied in this command. What is stealing? What is property? What is it right for a man to possess? These are questions which it is not easy to answer. And we have the uneasy feeling that the modern order dare not face them. I mean, this kind of goes hand in hand with with what Rich was talking about some in Sunday school, like wrestling through hard choices and hard directions of life. And instead of just imagining, look, I don't steal. I haven't picked anybody's pocket. I haven't stuck a gun in somebody's back. I haven't picked up money and kept it for myself. I turned it in. He's saying, in fact, if God has so blessed us, and I only consume it on myself, have I not stolen from my neighbor or stolen from God? These are hard questions. I mean, in some sense, right, those first three chapters of Ephesians are so easy. They're so doctrinal. They're so academic. They're so in the classroom. And now we're into the practical aspect, and and it may be like, I kind of wish we were back in the doctrine. Uh, this is this is like a little bit more meddling, but this is the the necessary consequence if those first three chapters are true. These are the things we need to think about. I know Dr. Greer, one of my heroes, one of my mentors from afar. I only engaged him in discussion once in my life, uh, but I've listened to his messages numerous, numerous times. 
I mean, Dr. Greer wrestled with this himself, as most, most Americans would or should or do. And he said, at what point are we willing to say, I've got enough? At what point do we stop just increasing our standard of living as we acquire more and more wealth? And do we say, it doesn't belong to me? I mean, I've got, I'm not good at this. I'm, I'm teaching this because the Bible says it. I'm not teaching it because I'm the model to look to. Like Paul can say, follow me as I follow Christ. And we're going to look at Paul. I thought Larry would be there in Sunday school. He didn't make it. So I'm going to beat Larry to it. Uh, so this is something I got to preach to myself and I got to wrestle with. And it's part of my prayer. You know, what do I do with what I've accumulated? Uh, one of my, it was kind of a liberating story. And, and if this, I, boy, I hope this doesn't make it sound like I've got it all right because I, I so don't. This is like a very rare exception in my life where I did something. Uh, back during COVID and the government's giving out money, right? Like there's several different times they're sending out money. And I'm like, I don't need the money. Like, I've still got my job. Uh, other people, they really did need the money because of everything that was happening in our culture. I didn't need the money. So one of those times you got the money, I just decided, you know, I don't need this. I'm giving this money away. It's not my money. I, I'm going to just, I just kind of dedicate, I'm going to give this money away. And so I, I had this money and I'm looking to give it away and I did. It was like, it was the $600. So I gave away six, you know, this, it was a crazy story and it was kind of crazy how God worked it out. Like there was a guy I was engaged with in a conversation from Mount Zion and I got to talking with him several times. He came to church once, you know, he needed an apartment. Dude, I, I gave him the money. I figured it wasn't my money. That was my attitude. This is not my money. It was easy to give away. The problem with that is. 600 of my dollars, I'm thinking this is not my money, it's God's. The rest is my money. That's the problem. I mean, there's a sense in which my attitude needs to be bigger than $600 is not my money. None of it's my money. It's all God's money. And God doesn't expect everybody to live like John the Baptist, eating locusts and wild honey and living out, you know, in animal fur out in the wilderness. God's got times of celebration in the Old Testament where like if you can't make it all the way to Jerusalem to for a, a particular feast day, it's like you take your you take your tithe, you turn it into cash and you have this celebration. God's all about celebrations. God, Ecclesiastes is about enjoying the good things of life as a gift from God. That's true, too. So there is no formula I can point myself to or you to and say, if you don't live by this standard, you've squandered what God's giving you. I can't say that. All I can do is speak to myself. And I'm not good at this. And I know I need to get better, and I'm working on it. Um, But those are the types of things Paul is confronting us with when he's dealing with this um, admonition in verse 26. Let's keep going. The motivation for working is so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I would rather expect Paul to say... You should work hard and do honest work so you can provide for your family, both immediate and extended. That's what I expect Paul to say. You ought to be able to provide for your own family. A man ought to be able to provide for his own family. Or a a married couple ought to be able to provide for their own kids. That's what I expect Paul to say. And there's truth in that. But Paul says, "I'll, I'll tell you why you should do this. 
so that you can share with other people in need. That's a little different. That makes me think I haven't progressed as far as I like to think I've progressed as a productive member of American society and culture. Work hard, do honest work, and here's your reason so that you have someone, something to share with anyone in need. And you're like, well, what if, what's a need? What really constitutes a need? Well, I'm back to where Rich is at. Let's talk about that. What is a need? Is this a need? Is this a legitimate need or an illegitimate need? It's, there's a variety of circumstances. But I know, you know, Ryan, my son Ryan's uh, actually better at this than I am. But I've heard somebody else say this as well, where uh, there's some sense in which by giving, I'm enlarging my heart. It's good for me. Like when I'm giving, it's good for, I need it because I need my heart to be enlarged so that I'm more merciful and compassionate and kind than I would be as if I didn't give. Well, what if they squander it? What if I don't give? It's what is it doing to me as well as this person and their expressed need? I think you have to wrestle through that stuff. So I'm, I'm right with Rich on that kind of stuff. I don't know that I'll ever not be in a hard place there. And maybe God does always want me in that hard place there. Uh, I think I need to be careful. So I'll throw that out there. Speaker's Bible, back to the 1900s. In, in breaking down this verse, I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, this is a little less practical, I suppose, so you may like it. Uh, but he talks about there are three stages of civilization in verse 26. So the first stage of civilization is fully pagan, and it's a civilization that is given to stealing. It's just a... You know, a lot of times where Christianity went, it made people more honest. And before Christianity was there, it was marred by more crime and decadence and stealing than before. So a thoroughly uh, pagan culture is, is marked by stealing. That's the first stage of civilization. The second stage of civilization is partly pagan and partly Christian. That is a stage of honest work. Because most pagans... Most secular cultures, they still value honest work. They still find stealing not a good thing in most cultures, most governments, most civilizations. So it's partly pagan, it's partly Christian. Both groups value that. But the third stage is especially Christian, and that is sharing with anyone in need. That's especially Christian. It doesn't mean that unbelievers can't share because sometimes they do, but I pray that Christians in the church are known for sharing better than the secular world is. If we are not demonstrating our compassion in how we share so that we ought to be able to put uh, the world to shame, I wonder if we're not stealing. Three stages. Here's Paul's last words spoken to the church's elders in Acts chapter 20. I thought this would have been awesome if you would actually, if, he, if, if Larry had been there, because he's right almost there. And if he'd read that and then we're dealing with it again this morning. So now it's a spoiler alert for Larry, uh, although I'm sure he's read it. Acts chapter 20, Paul lives out what he's, what he's describing to the Ephesians in verse 26. This isn't just a... Uh, 
Paul telling everybody else what to do, but he's flying around in a jet everywhere he goes because he's got all the money. Paul lives what he's telling people to do, what he's telling the church to do in verse 26. It looks like this. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the, give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Paul worked hard, he did honest work, and he shared. Like, I can't imagine what Paul's day looked like. Because for me to unwind, I, I go on a bike ride. You know, Hannah, I go AWOL every time I'm on a bike ride. I'm like, I'm out there. I'm like, I'm done. I'm going. I'm in, going to Indiana. And then I get tired and I come back. <laughs> uh, but Paul lived what he said we should all do. I think Paul could say, but I'm an apostle. I've got a lot of important stuff to do. I'm planting churches. I'm writing scripture. You know, I'm doing, I'm mentoring people, I'm discipling people. Like, I shouldn't work. And he does. Paul says, I have a right not to work. I'm an apostle. But because Paul so wants to avoid any concept of he's preaching for money, he works with his own hands and provides for himself. Although he did receive gifts from especially the Philippian church, some of the Macedonian churches, they sacrificially gave, but he never required it. He never expected it. He worked with his own hands. He also, I'm not done with what, Paul's, or, uh, what Paul said in Ephesians. So, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do I believe that? It's more blessed to give than to receive? Um, I think as I get older, I appreciate it more because I've accumulated so much stuff. Like, I don't need more stuff. I just, I, I stopped rummage sailing. I stopped going to auctions. I don't care if the kids are interested in giving me something for my birthday. It's nice that they love me enough that they do. But I don't need more stuff. But the younger you are, it's like, oh, yeah, bring the stuff. There's always something new you want to, you know. But part of me, I can still use a new bike. (laughs) But that's different. But Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, which we wouldn't know that Jesus said that except Paul told us he did. Jesus modeled that. But there's no place in the Gospels, I didn't actually didn't double check, but I'm pretty sure there's no place in the Gospels where you're going to find where Jesus said is more blessed to give than to receive. But it's true. It's true. Jesus said it. Paul wrote it. It's inspired by God. And so my life ought to reflect something of the truthfulness of what Jesus said and Paul wrote down. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Not just to my family. Something to share with anyone in need. Whatever work I do, whatever task is undertaken, it is my opportunity and charge to glorify and serve Christ my Lord. This is going to go really well with Sunday school as well. Because we talked about, Hannah was talking about it in Sunday school, about our calling, what we're charged to do. 
And, and there is a terrific book called Why the Reformation Still Matters. It came out in 2016. Joe, do you have this book? Did I hear it from you first? You, you have some book about the Reformation. It might have been a different one. This is a crazy good book. Uh, not that I've read the whole thing. But I'm going to quote, I'm going to play audio clips from just one chapter. The one chapter is called Everyday Life. Uh, and this is in the context of the Reformation. So how did the Reformation change how Christians thought and how Christians lived in everyday life? And I also want to give the caveat, while it corrected some very important things about how important everyday life is to the church and to all Christians, you can also err on the other side and treat Sunday or treat gathering of the church as very much optional. Everyday life is important to God. Every, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are all important to God. And they ought to be treated accordingly. It's my charge to glorify and serve Christ my Lord every day of the week. But I could err too far and say, ah, but Sunday's optional. Sunday, Sunday gathering with the church is really no, is, it's not a special day, because we could gather in whatever day. We could. The Bible doesn't require to meet on Sunday, but the Bible does require to prioritize meeting together as a body of believers for the encouragement of everyone, because I need your gifts. And you need my gifts. And we need one another. And so the Bible does prioritize a special gathering together. It doesn't mean, I'm not going to say you have to be here every time the doors are open, that it's impossible to, to be somewhere else and, and you're living in sin. I'm, I'm not saying those things, but we ought not to treat our gathering together as a light thing. It's still a freedom we enjoy in our culture, in our country, and it should be a prized thing. So three quotes from why the Reformation still matters. The first one is only one minute and 51 seconds. And uh, he talks pretty quickly, and the first one is describing the difference between a Christian's, or maybe not a difference, uh, describing what it means that a Christian has a station in life and a calling. Uh, one minute and 51 seconds, hold on to your seats, it kind of reads like Rod's playing the piano. Station and Calling one of the strengths of Luther's doctrine is the value it gives to the activity of unbelievers, while adding extra impetus to Christians. Luther uses two different words for our social activities, station, stunt, and calling or vocation, beruf. Everyone has a station in life, believer and unbeliever. We all have a place God has assigned to us. As we act within those stations, we all contribute to God's providential care of the world. But, in response to God's word, Christians see their station as a calling from God. We understand our station to be a call from God to glorify Him and serve others. What transforms a station into a calling is faith. By faith, we see our daily activities as tasks given to us by God to be done for His glory and for the common good. Many Christians struggle to find a sense of calling. To this, Luther says, How is it possible that you are not called? You have always been in some state or station. 
you have always been a husband or wife, or boy or girl, or servant. Luther would not have understood the language of finding your calling. Your calling is not mysterious or difficult to discern. It is the current circumstances of your life. If you are a mother, then it is being a mother. If you are an office worker, then it is being an office worker. There is a freedom to change, but there is not a mysterious word from God waiting to be discovered to mandate your change. Your responsibility is to serve your neighbor in your current context. That is so powerful. Your calling is where you are right now, and you are called to glorify God and serve Him wherever you find yourself. As a child at home, as a student, wherever your job is, your calling is where you're at. And he does make the distinction. It doesn't mean you can't make a change. And if I were to play four clips, I would play a a fourth one that addresses that. But the point being, the larger point is wherever you're at, God has placed you there to serve him and honor him. No matter how otherwise miserable that station may be, God has placed you there for his reason, to glorify him. And so do it well. This is, this is one of the changes that the Reformation brought to the church. It's not just the monks that are holed up somewhere that are holy before God. All of God's people have been called in their place to serve him. And it was celebrated. It was celebrated. The second clip is only 51 seconds. And he talks about the Protestant work ethic. Protestant work ethic. So the idea of working hard and doing honest work. But he makes a distinction there. Listen to what he says on this. People often talk about the Protestant work ethic, the commitment to work that arose because of the Reformation emphasis on everyday life. Today, the Protestant work ethic is often blamed for the overworked and overstressed culture of modern life. Work became a good thing, and so the more work, the better. But work was never ultimate in the thinking of the Reformation. God was ultimate. We work to the glory of God and rest to His glory. So Sabbath rest also became an important theme in Reformation churches. The real problem is the removal of God. In the modern world, work has become an end in itself— Indeed, in many ways, it has become a God, offering salvation in the form of self-fulfillment. So there, one of his points is, in our culture, we prize hard work. You know, you earn a living, you gain assets, you drive nicer vehicles, or you live in bigger houses, or you go to more exotic places. All those things, which can be gifts of God. I'm not disputing that. But the idea that somehow it can be separated from whatever we're doing or working at or acquiring is done to the glory of God. And when God is removed and it's become an end to itself, it's turned into an idol. It's turned into something polluted because it all belongs to him. Last clip is kind of how he ends the chapter. It's uh, two and a half minutes and he talks about... um, being brought into a relationship with God through Christ. How we're in this relationship where our relationship with God isn't just a, we're gathered together as a church on Sunday morning, we're singing, praise the Lord, ye heavens adore him, 
the love of God. We're singing that on Sunday morning. And then the relationship kind of ends when you walk back out the door. But rather the Reformation, what it impressed upon believers is that we're in relationship with God 24-7. And so all of life is to be lived in light of his presence. So here's how he ends the chapter on everyday life in light of the Reformation. Justification by faith means God is not distant, for Christ brings us into a relationship with God. Now God is near, and God is welcoming. So this leads to a strong sense that you live life coram Deo, before God. This is an important phrase for Luther. In Calvin, too, there is a strong sense of the presence of God. Calvin said that in every dimension of life, human beings have business with God. Negotium cum Deo. Still today, Christians can give the impression that true Christian work is work done for a church or parachurch. Or we think we need to go on a retreat to be truly spiritual. The very term, retreat, is a bit of a giveaway. It suggests that monastic thinking still lingers in our minds. Or we measure commitment to Christ in terms of commitment to the activities of our church. The person who regularly attends the prayer meeting and serves a church committee is assumed to be a strong Christian. People who have less time for these things, because they are busy at work or serving in the community, are assumed to be failing as disciples. We make the call to follow Christ a call to participate in church programs, and then we wonder why we are so poor at reaching the lost or impacting our culture. Still, today we tend to look for religion in the extraordinary. We expect to encounter God in the special meetings in special locations, whether that is the grandeur of a cathedral with its elaborate liturgy or the buzz of a high-octane worship service. Luther's doctrine of vocation placed the work of God firmly in the ordinary. Through our vocation, God is revealed even in mundane activities. God is the God of all creation. He is the God of Monday mornings as well as Sunday mornings. Humanity was made in the image of God to reflect His glory in His world. In the gospel, we are restored to our true humanity. We are renewed so that we can again reflect God's glory in God's world. The Reformation affirmation of everyday life is an invitation to see the whole earth as the theater of God's glory, and to see our whole lives as opportunities to reflect that glory. Again, a terrific quote. One of the takeaways, Lutheran's doctrine of vocation placed the work of God firmly in the ordinary. It all belongs to God. This is a unique part of, of our life in that we don't always gather every day of the week. So it is unique and special in some sense, just like Monday is unique to you to serve and glorify God in your ordinary because it all belongs to him. So the Reformation, on one hand, is such a freeing concept because it invites all Christians to, to enter into relationship with God in every activity of life. But it also makes us much more responsible, doesn't it? It's a lot easier to just check off a box saying, I've gone to church on Sunday morning, than to recognize all of my time, all of my recreation, all of my labor, all of my money, it all belongs to him. 
and I'm to glorify him in everything that I do, which is the message of the New Testament, kind of re-proclaimed in the Protestant Reformation. All right, comments and questions about stealing, work, and sharing. Stealing, work, and sharing. This would be a really good time if we had offering baskets. I'd go grab them and we could... Uh, Sarah. Elizabeth Elliot was amazingly wise. Uh, She went through dark valleys and it was not to no good end. Her, Her difficult times, God certainly wove into her life to make her the woman who was able to speak the things that she did that were so beneficial to all the rest of us. I mean, it's wonderful to think, oh, I wish God would use me in such a big way until I realize what it requires for God to use a instrument like the likes of any of us in a really big way. And so I don't think the goal is, I don't want God to use me. I think the goal is God knows best. God knows best. So God, however you choose to use me, whether it's very ordinary and unnoticed, I pray that I would be faithful, or whether you choose to use me in a way uh, that's going to really break me in a significant way, you know best. I think it's just is believing God knows best. Your will be done. That'd be a good time for that song from City of Light. Anybody else? Cindy. Um, I think the Bible, I think the Bible does, but it just doesn't specify exactly what that looks like. Yeah, Yeah, it is hard. It is hard. I think, you know, if I go back to the 1900s quote, the idea that we just don't like to think about it, or we just think, well, that doesn't apply to me, that's the place I don't want to be. Because if I have that attitude, I'm probably in one of those ditches. So the idea is to, to wrestle through it, and if I find that I've, I mean, I discovered a lot years ago, uh, I can always find a reason not to give. Because generally, people that are expressing a need, all I have to do, I mean, when people used to come to the church door and I'm here by myself and they're starting to talk to me, all, I figured out a long time ago, I can get out of ever giving out any charity because I just start asking questions and they've made horrible choices, bad decisions. You know, like you're traveling from so-and-so to so-and-so and and you had no gas money. Like, uh, I mean, I I wouldn't have gone on the trip. (laughs) You know, uh, I I could always find a reason not to give. But if I'm always finding a reason not to give, what is that doing to me? So I'm not saying I should always give regardless of the situation, but that's the nuance of it, right? So I think it is that going back to what Rich talks about, I do think I need to wrestle with that. I need to work through that. Uh, you know, I mean, we've all got stories. Uh, Brian? Isn't there That's true. I just know that I can, always, I can always expose their bad choices. And so if I can always expose their bad choices, and I can always then give myself a reason not to give, I'm not sure that I, I'm on the right path. I think I've got to figure out a way how to give away, how to meet some of those needs. I think on some level. Hannah? Sure. And Timothy, it even talks about those who are truly needy. Like out of the, because the widows, 
The first responsibility is to be the family to the widows. But those widows that are, the way it's phrased, those that are truly in need, that have no family to provide for their needs, the church needs to step up. Go ahead. Yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no prescription that's going to apply to everybody here, but you do have to think about it and wrestle through it. I mean, ideally, it is somebody you know in your life. You know, those, those are more unique. That's, that's, those are great situations where it's somebody you're already in a relationship with and you know a need and you can participate in that need. Those are wonderful situations. Sometimes, you know, I mean, the church gives money to the Dove Max organization. I don't know if they changed their name, but you know, they provide some oversight to discern what is a need. And I, I have a measure of trust in how they're distributing their money. I think that's a very good thing. I think that's, uh, and there's other Christian organizations you can trust. But there's another sense in which I like the personal aspect of if I know an individual or a family or situation where they have a need and I personally know them and I can participate in that. Because I don't, personally, this is me, I just don't always want to go through an organization if I can avoid it. I think organizations do a great job. I don't want to shun them, but I also don't want to think only because I've given to an organization that I never can engage personally in a relationship and meet a need. So all of this, it's, it's complicated. I just know, I mean, these are principles. Think it through. Think it through. Anybody else? Josh. Yeah, I mean, certainly, because our, our gospel witness, I mean, that's, that goes back to the classic, you know, I don't know, I hope it's still not true, where, where restaurants, you know, Christians are like the worst crowd to tip, you know, but we'll leave a tract. I mean, we don't do that anymore, I don't think, much as a culture. But back, back when I grew up in the 70s, and for sure, like, Christians left tracts all the time, like, here's your tip, you know, you're going to hell if you don't believe these four points, you know, there's your tip, you know, it's like... Uh, I worked in the restaurant long enough to know that didn't go over real well. You know, I mean, if you want to leave a tract with some cash, okay, then you've kind of you've kind of melded the two, and I think they can be more receptive. But you know, if I'm just giving a tip, but I it's not showing forth in the generosity of my finances, uh, I'm not sure that's. I think that's an inconsistent witness. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.